0: You are listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. This is episode 68, Filmmaker Kenny Luck. We talk about his documentaries and, more generally, goal setting, understanding what's in our control, not being results-oriented, and the pitfalls of perfectionism. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media, Find past episodes and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom-tailored podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvakula at gmail.com. Thanks for your support. Kenny Luck is an author, filmmaker, photographer, videographer, and a doctoral student studying human development at Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He released the documentary Half Empty, Life in America's Unhappiest City in 2016, and Opioid Nation, The Making of an Epidemic in 2017. He last appeared on this podcast in June of 2017 to talk about his work on Henry David Thoreau in his book Thumbing Through Thoreau. On to today's discussion. All right. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me again. It's great to uh, speak with you.
0: Yes, it's been about a year since we chatted last. And since then, you've created a documentary, Opioid Nation. That's
1: right. That's right.
0: And... What drove you to make a film about opioids?
1: Last year when we were talking, I was in the middle of doing that project. We were in the middle of filming and editing. And, you know, it was something that really wasn't discussed because I had no idea where it was going to go. And here we are 12 months later. And it's been a really interesting journey going from that kind of inception of the process to now a year into this and seeing kind of the fruit that it bared. Specifically to address your question about opioids, as many of your listeners are probably aware, the opioid issue has been a growing concern in the United States, particularly over the last two to three years, although drug issues and substance abuse goes way longer than that. But this current trend has been developing quietly, through the 2000s and into this decade, and it's really been exploding in the last couple of years. To answer your question, I really have to go back to early 2016. And what happened then was uh, I did my first short documentary called Half Empty, which you may remember, which was about sort of general happiness in the Scranton area. and. Right. It was based on survey data that we were one of the unhappiest areas in the United States. So when I heard about that, I thought that could be a really great topic for a film. So I made the film really up to that point. All the videos I made were lucky to get, you know, a hundred or 200 views. And within two weeks that had 20,000, you know, about a year and a half went by and I was like, okay, what can I do to? You know, get, keep this audience and build on it. And one of my good friends, who's a filmmaker from the Tunkhannock, Pennsylvania area, which is up by Wyoming uh, County up north, uh, went to high school with some people that had uh, overdosed on opioids. And actually, it was a suggestion from him to say, like, why don't we look into this issue? Because for months we were kicking around ideas and just trying to find the right content that would be good for a film. And, you know, I thought about it and started reading about it. I thought, yeah, this does seem like something that people were talking about and something that we could possibly do locally with almost no budget, but also have some kind of national reach, which I think is what happened with it. And uh, that's how it got started.
0: Right. And you've had some personal background as well that led to the creation of the film.
1: That's, that's right. And uh, even though I haven't been directly affected by Opioids, particularly, I've been affected by substance abuse issues uh, in my direct family. Uh, I am, you know, not ashamed to say this. I grew up in an alcoholic household. My father was a, it was and is a textbook alcoholic. Growing up, going as a teen, going through uh, AA and AA and that kind of culture, and understanding that, okay, you know, in, in the case of opioids, it's somebody injecting something. In the case of alcohol, it's somebody drinking. But really, the human toll and the human cost that substance abuse has on people, to me, when, once you start getting into the weeds, it ends up being the same. It almost makes no difference, in my opinion, what the, what the drug is. It, it destroys families. It destroys lives. And, and I had sort of a lot of empathy with the characters and the people that we were interviewing and being welcomed into their lives and seeing how opioids affecting them and just kind of having memories of how alcohol affected my life as well.
0: Right. It's a big portion of the documentary to see that human side, to hear stories from people who are homeless, people who had lost their family members.
1: That's right. Yeah. And what we tried to do, I mean, the, the documentary really started off by coming, putting a list together of people that we thought we would want to interview. So what my goal was, was to try to get as, wide as of a of a population as I could, like former users and law enforcement and political people. And I think we did a pretty good job of that. You know, there's always some criticism. Why didn't you interview this person or that person? But Uh the reality is, you know, I always say filmmaking, this seems like a strange analogy, but it's a lot like being an engineer in that engineers, whether they're civil or chemical or nuclear, whatever it is, deal with constraints and trade-offs when they do something when you do something here, it affects something over there, and you're always dealing with constraints. You're dealing with budget constraints. You deal with human constraints. You deal with time constraints. So at the time, I just tried to make the best film that I could with very little, you know, economic resources. And you know, I'm happy to say, a, a year into this, it's had over a hundred thousand views on YouTube, and it's being broadcast statewide in the fall. On some PBS affiliates. So I, I think the
0: point was made uh, with that. Good. So a good way to tackle the problem head on by seeing, oh, well, there was this disaster, there's this loss, there's this problem. What can we do about it? Because simply hoping for it to go away isn't going to help the issue. We're going to have to confront it in one way or another. And with the documentary, you got to show a side that people might not be able to see. Maybe they get involved in using, they know others who use, they don't think it can have such disastrous consequences.
1: It, that's exactly right. And if I can say, you know, this was a very small contribution to the, the the real people that are on the front line fighting this thing, the public health people, the counselors, the families dealing with it. But on the other hand, too, we do live in a very... Technically literate culture. I mean, people are consuming content media all the time, and by drawing attention, even if it is a hundred thousand, I mean, yeah, it's not a million, but there's a hundred thousand people that have seen it. They're not all going to interpret the message the same way, and they, I know they haven't, but it still keeps the issue going and gets people talking. And to me, that's the educational component of of dealing with a social problem like
0: this. Right. And there have been social problems around no matter the age. It's something that the Stoics mentioned that people talk about, oh, there's a great problem with our times that there's a specific thing that's happening. But in whatever era, there is going to be some sort of social contagion, some reason people are suffering. And this just happens to be one of those things. That's right. That's right. I agree. What was your response to meeting some of the people, some of the individuals that were involved in the documentary, it must have been a difficult process.
1: Yeah, I would say it ended up becoming a difficult process. When it started out, it was very abstract and intellectual to me. I mean, even talking, you know, the first person we interviewed was this uh, girl, Allison, who was a recovering user. And thankfully, she had a good story. I mean, she had been through like hell, basically. I mean, she was facing legal issues, uh, health issues because of it. She ended up beating it, which is a rare story to be told, and that kind of was interesting. And then we moved through more of the, you know, last summer when we we're doing the interviews, the political people, the law enforcement, and you know, they, they they contributed a lot to the film and to the story that was told. But I have to admit, there wasn't anything that was said at that point that necessarily surprised me where it really became emotional and personal was the film really focuses on these two mothers and the one mother her son overdosed and died from the overdose and another mother her son overdosed many times survived and is still fighting addiction and you know they were very nice to, to allow me and my filmmaking friend to come to their home for a day and basically shadow them around and interview them and you know, after that day, which was almost a pretty much a year this week, I, I think it was the end of July last year, really had an impact on me um, That driving away that day after spending, you know, eight or 10 hours filming them really made me realize that the, the human toll that addiction has on people. And I, I I have to say, from a filmmaking perspective, I don't think the film would have been as urgent and and would have connected with as many people if we didn't have those interviews in there the the, seeing you know these mothers in this particular case where the one mother had lost her son over it was really emotional and i think that's the part of the story that from a documentary filmmaking point of view that you really do want to capture and it's a real tough balance because you're not there to exploit these people you're just there to tell their story but do it in an ethical way that they're comfortable, and yet you're still getting your, your your point across as a filmmaker.
0: Right. And an effective way for them to deal with grief by sharing the story and just talking about the human side of it.
1: That's right. Yeah. And I think I think, you know, I've talked to them a few times since, you know, we haven't really kept in touch. But I know that they've had a lot of positive things to say about the film when it came out, when they first saw it, and they were happy, and that helps get their story told. So I think it it does have a mutually beneficial kind of relationship between, you know, the filmmaker and some of the subjects in there, again, as long as you're acknowledging that ethical line.
0: Right. It's an interesting question of how to overcome what we might call misfortune, a disaster, bad news, tragedy, all of these things. And for them, the film could have been a way of doing that.
1: That's right. And I think that this ties in a lot to stoicism as a philosophy as well. But, you Mm -hmm. know, resilience is a big part of that story, too. I think having emotional and psychological resiliency build up with these individuals that are, I have to say, lucky enough to survive if they are, because these drugs, I mean, I don't need to reiterate to your audience how deadly they really are. I mean, it's not you know, I mentioned alcohol earlier and, and, and there's plenty of people and lives that that destroys too. But opioid addiction happens really, in a, it's in a, it's almost in a different class in that when somebody injects for the first time, they don't necessarily know what they're injecting or could be concocted in those drugs that could kill somebody really quick. So it's really scary. It's not like smoking a joint or taking a sip of alcohol. Those things could lead to vices people allow them to. But opioids are in this class that it's an instant addiction and it it, it changes, uh, you know, your, 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 your brain chemistry in a way that it's not just, Oh, I'm going to stop doing this or I have a psychological addiction. They're chemically addicted. And I can't imagine what that must feel like for certain people that are hooked on it.
0: Right. And what did the user talk about and that she had done in order to stave away The habit
1: art was a big outlet for her, which was interesting because I, am not a painter myself, but you know, I'm a musician and writer and I've always had a a peripheral real appreciation for that kind of art. And she was a painter. So she had said literally that, you know, I, once I got through the withdrawal process, which I I believe that could take weeks or even months for certain people, then they're kind of stuck facing themselves in the mirror and how do you deal with that? And with her, it was through art. And she ended up becoming a certified peer specialist and working with people in almost a therapeutic role in using art in that way. So it was interesting, even though for some, maybe that could sound trite. But she used painting and art to face herself once the addiction part was over, and, uh, or I should say the chemical addiction part was over. You know, she was the lucky one. Like I said, there were others that, that, that weren't so lucky that, that had, you know, have to deal with this for the rest of their life if they've, if they've lost a family member.
0: Right. And for many who start using some of the common things that you hear is that people were just looking to have some sort of high, they were looking for some sort of escape from reality, something fun, but turned out to be something that was bad in the long run.
1: Yeah, it's really, you know, the history of this is really interesting. I I don't consider myself an expert per se. But, um, you know, it started really, uh, this particular wave started, uh, in the 90s and and after, and, and and what's interesting to me about it is the many fronts that it covers. Because it, we didn't get into this in the film because there just wasn't enough time and resources to do it. But for instance, there's this pharmaceutical piece of it where OxyContin came in the market. I believe it was 96 or sometime in the 90s. Don't quote me, but it was it was over 20 years ago. And also doctors dealing with the pain scale and pain is a very subjective thing. It's very real, but it's very hard to quantitatively measure. I mean, so if I say to you, how much pain do you have? And a 10 is like, you know, you're on fire and a one is like, well, it's a little uncomfortable. It's Mm -hmm. hard if somebody says, well, I'm a seven. Well, that could be a lot of pain. So what does a doctor do? So it also has to do with sort of the inaccuracy of that and that feeding into it. As well as the cheap availability of these drugs, too, uh, getting out on the street. I quoted this think in the film, but I, I know for fact that one of the things is heroin is very cheap. You could go buy five, ten, twenty dollar bags. Pills, I, I know at least they were when I did this research about a year ago. Run for about I think a dollar a milligram. So if you want a forty milligram pill on off the street, you're looking at forty bucks. Well, it's a lot cheaper to then turn to another opioid like heroin and spend $20. So the economics, unfortunately, are in favor of people who deal it and also people who are addicted to it. And these are parts of the problem when people say, well, what do we do about it? I don't have the answer to that necessarily, but part of it is addressing it from a top-down policy issue as well as dealing with it from a bottom-up, which is education and things like that. But I think it's going to be with us for some time.
0: And it's been a recent thing that's particularly impacted Pennsylvania as well.
1: So far with the two short films that I've done, I mean, again, half empty, your listeners, some scope of it, you know, 23,000. Okay, that's good. It's not breaking the internet, but that's good for, for me who started venturing into filmmaking and this one being over 100,000. And then, you know, like I mentioned, in the fall, it's going to be broadcast The reason I mention that is because when I come up with these ideas for a film, I try to think of this old adage in journalism, which is, you know, localize the global and globalize the local. And part of the reason that resonates with me so much is because, again, maybe in the future this will change, but I just haven't had the budgets to go around the country and be like, I want to interview, you know, somebody in Texas or Idaho or California So I've had to find topics that have a broader reach but I can kind of do on a local scale. And I felt like from a filmmaking point of view, this was unfortunately a good topic for that because Pennsylvania is being hit really hard as well as Ohio and New Hampshire and West Virginia and sort of these other Rust Belt states as well. Um, So we're kind of smack right in the middle of it.
0: There is also some local media coverage surrounding the documentary as well.
1: That's right. Yeah. And, you know, when it came out, it was interesting um, to watch because it, it we dropped it at the very end of August, like early September last year. And at first it was sort of a slow build buildup. Uh, it was like averaging about a thousand views a day or so, which, again, wasn't bad. But from a filmmaking perspective, I was kind of interested to see how this was going to go it just kind of caught up really quickly by the end of September into October and early November. I was just blown away by the response. I had been invited on some local radio and television, a lot of radio and, and television and some print media and getting asked to come and speak. Uh, uh, Blog Con, for example, is a social media conference that they had me speak in in the fall. And certain venues like that, it it really was interesting to kind of watch how much interest there was in this, which sort of fed into my belief that in the arts in particular, there's this long debate about, you know, form versus content and which one, you know, is more important. And I think in filmmaking, they're both important, but content and storytelling really makes a difference. You can make a great, beautifully shot film about shoelaces And maybe I would watch that, but if it's something that isn't timely and relevant to an audience, it might fall flat on its face. And that's something having a public relations background that I'm kind of always aware of when I'm taking on these projects, because I want to do something that is personal and interesting to me that I can learn about, but also something that people are talking about that's timely, because I think that's what we all want to do, right? We want to have these conversations. How do you have these conversations? How do you weigh in? What is the appropriate medium to do that? Once you can answer those questions for yourself, you go ahead and do it and hopefully you have good
0: results. Good. So you're not focusing on the outcome. You're not coming in with an expectation of a certain number, but rather you're just giving a good effort and seeing what happens.
1: That's exactly right. And if, if you you could, uh, indulge me for one second here. I mean, that's something I'm kind of thinking about in the future with other projects. Um, I don't know. It hasn't been narrowed down what the next project will be this year. I've dealt with some personal and professional things. And right now, all summer, I've been focusing on creating a soundtrack to the next film. So I haven't, it's kind of the opposite. Usually the film is shot and then you look for the music and I, been a musician way longer than I've been a filmmaker, but I haven't really been exploring it too much. So I've been exploring music right now and creating these, these little musical vignettes and spending a lot of time in the recording studio. And what I hope is to build up enough tracks to when I, whatever the next film is going to be, that these will hopefully fit in. The reason I mention that is because I think it loosely ties into your comment about process. And for me, it wasn't an ego thing it's just i love music and i want to try to find a way to keep making music and i think having film as that medium is an exciting thing and it's a novel thing because not all musicians are filmmakers so i feel like well if if i can kind of have that piece of myself creatively fulfilled that's a part of another brick in that wall toward that process and and, and you're right i mean and you know that being said it is nice when you do something that resonates with an audience and it gives you more incentive to keep going. And I think that's the goal is to kind of build it over time. But you really do want to be focused on the execution of the of the project and all the little things that go with that. I mean, when you're interviewing somebody, you're focusing on is the lighting correct? Do we have the shot composed well? Are we getting good sound? How is this going to fit into the larger narrative arc that we're trying to tell and that's the kind of stuff that really excites me and then when you put all that together which takes a lot of time hopefully at the end of the day you have something people want to
0: watch right some people might come in and say oh i would like this result i would like this to happen i would like this to happen but a lot of it can be outside of our control and what the audience is going to think how many views come in is there so many of these chance factors that come into play.
1: That's right, you know, and I and I have to say, without you know naming names, I I I think this extends well into the other art forms, into you know the fine arts, definitely music, literary people that I know, they tend to be very results focused. And just to give you a little anecdote, in in you know you know I'm I've published books in the past and. You know, after doing that, I had people come up to me and they said, can I have your publisher's contact information because I want to publish a book. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily mind doing that. But then I would say to them, well, you know, let's get through the first filter here and let me read what you wrote. What did you write? Well, I didn't write anything yet. I just want to publish a book, you know. Hmm. And when when you hear that kind of stuff, I'm not knocking those people per se, but I think that's the wrong mindset. As a a quick, you know, since you have me on this topic, I have a, again, won't name names, but somebody I went to high school with years ago, and he kind of has popped in and out of my awareness over the the last decade and a half, and started out as a musician, trying to be a writer, doing all this stuff, and he's had some very contentious things to say to me about some of the things I've done, and I've never really responded to them in a very stoic way. I have to, I have to say, <laughs> but it makes me think about that kind of that philosophy, tying it into that. Of, of course, you want to have outcomes. It's nice to have outcomes, and you want to have some kind of thing down the road that you're working toward. But if you're just focused on that, this is a life lesson, whether it's in filmmaking or book writing or whatever. I don't know that your results are necessarily going to be what you want them to be or at the very least, you're going to be really disappointed when you don't get the outcomes you want. But if you put out good work and you see it as a a slow build, I think over time people do catch on to what you're doing if you have even some talent or some foresight in what you're doing and certainly not where I always want to be. But I always find that the process does make me happy, and I think results come from having that attitude. So it is a very stoic attitude to to, to kind of harbor and keep in mind.
0: Good. And I hear a call for humility there of not just thinking we're going to destroy the world with this next project, but to actually have something to work from, to take our time doing it and see what happens there. It's like, well, I want to publish this book, this and that person should recognize me, we should already get in contact. But what do you have to show Any anyone can just come forth and say that they have an idea? But is it going to be a good one? Do we even have the skills to get toward that goal? Is that a realistic goal that we can achieve?
1: And that's exactly right. And I think the only way to, well, it's not the only way, but the most practical way is building personal credibility in yourself by doing things. I mean, even the fact that we're sitting here having this conversation about filmmaking that we didn't have a year ago, even shows me like, okay, you know, what you do will get notice if you put the time in and and work on it. But it, it, it sounds trite, but being process oriented over outcomes definitely has a lot of merit. And again, that's not to say that you can't have goals or that you shouldn't have goals. It's Focusing solely on outcomes can be problematic, especially in the arts in general. I think a lot of people and this this is I think is, is true of generally of creative types, whether they're composers or musicians or literary writers or filmmakers, they do believe, you know, the next thing they're gonna do is gonna rock the world. And unfortunately most of the time it doesn't, but it doesn't have to rock the world. It could be You know, that 20, if you're lucky, that 20,000 people on YouTube or that 100,000 people on YouTube or even your local community. You know, I've been happy with that. And I think having that kind of gradual build, it takes time. But eventually people kind of catch on if you have something interesting to say about the world or present something different about the
0: world. Right. We can be. Critics of pop culture as well and look at what what might happen to be the most popular and praised. And we see this uh, Ariana Grande, God is a woman music video. She's gyrating around a globe. And you know, <laughs> d- does yeah. this really have as much value compared to many other things? This is what happens to be popular. But is that something that we should aspire to do? Is this this highest art form? Of, indeed, we have subjective tastes and we could talk about art being subjective, but... Yeah, just because we get all the views in the world doesn't mean that this is the greatest thing. Hey, well, that's right. And you know, in in her
1: defense, I mean, I li- I love pop music and I love certain aspects of popular culture, but I'm not seduced by it. You know, it's entertaining and kind of like candy for fun for a short time. But yeah, there are other things out there that that endure more or less trendy. That that uh, definitely have more merit to them. Is it fun to indulge in that kind of candy for a little bit? Sure. But when you get caught up in it and feel that that's all there is, that becomes problematic. And I think the Stoics would totally agree with that.
0: Right. That that just to seek fame and maybe sell out in the process or just work to please the crowds and really give up a sense of our own creative aspect or creating some quality contents that there's, there's a fine balance there.
1: This is one of the things I've learned a lot being, getting into this filmmaking thing. And I want to really, if I'm lucky, continue doing this and hopefully have more stories to tell. I, one of the things I've learned is this, that the old adage is again, as tried as it sounds, if you want something done, do it yourself. Because when I started Earlier on, several years ago in the book writing world, 2009, 10, 11, during those years when I was more active in publishing and stuff, that seemed like the next logical thing. And, and, you know, back at that time, social media was certainly around and video has been around, been with us for for decades. But it's it's become even more ubiquitous in recent years. And I remember even thinking back then, like, this is an area I kind of want to get into. OK, how do I do it? And I learned that either you're going to pay somebody a lot of money if you have a film ID you want to make to to make it for you, which wasn't an option because I don't have money or you take this long dredged out path of learning to do it yourself. And that's what I did. And and, uh, I've had these conversations with people do weddings, for example, I'll do stuff for nonprofits, which I enjoy doing. I'll do photography. One of the, the, give them a shout out. Scranton has a Shakespeare festival and there's a lot of talent involved with that. And I've been doing the photography for those shows. And I learn every time I'm out, I learned something about lighting. I learned something about composition or dealing with people. And that's how you, I think you become a filmmaker. That's how you become anything is going through that process. And I, again, just one more anecdote. I've I have a local friend of mine who had a, a fully written script come to me a couple years ago and say, I want to make this into a movie. How do I do it? And I didn't know what to tell him. I said, look, this is this is why I don't do narrative filmmaking, first of all, because you're talking about actors. You're talking about sets. You're talking about big budgets. And just go from zero to 100 overnight, I don't think is a realistic thing. And, and that's one of the things that's taught me that, you know, you go out and – get muddy and get dirty, do the weddings, do the small things, learn on the job. If you didn't go to film school and and you can have success that way. The problem is a lot of people don't have patience for that stuff. They want it tomorrow. And uh, that turns a lot of people off. But it's effective in the long run.
0: Those quick results won't just pop into existence. And through the trial and through learning, that's where we can really grow as people, learn more about the craft we wish to take on and rise to that higher level going through that process.
1: How questions are more important than what necessarily? I mean, what is your content? What is your outcome? How you get there is really interesting. And and I tend to be a little on the nerdy side. And I'm interested in those things and in the little details, like how did they get the lighting for that shot? Or how did they get such good sound? Or who edited this this way? How did they do it? those are the things that ultimately get you in that to that end goal. And again, that's true in filmmaking. And it's true in life, no matter what pursuit you're doing. And I've learned a lot from this. And and I hope to learn more. And it's been it's been an interesting and great process.
0: And a lot of the unexpected must happen during the process. Maybe you lose some audio, the video doesn't come out the right way. People don't show up when they're supposed to. How do you react to these unexpected parts?
1: You know, that is a really good question. And, and, and that does happen. It's not just hypothetical. I mean, that happens. And I'll give you a quick anecdote and then I'll explain my answer. But when we were filming, uh, Opioid Nation, there was a scene that stood out to a lot of people of us talking to a guy under a bridge and he didn't want to be filmed. And the story behind that was it was totally real and it wasn't an actor. And, We had heard, when I say we, it was me and the one guy I was filming with that day. We were doing B roll and just going around. And he had told me that he thought that there was this spot where people kind of hang out and, you know, shoot up or, you know, there's some nefarious things going on. And he said, I wonder what would happen if we went there. And I said, well, let's go there and find (laughs) out because. You know, that's the only way we're going to know. And that's what documentary filmmakers, I like it because they get embedded in in, in proper research. You know, it's participant observation or just observation. But we went to this spot and sure enough, there was a guy hanging out at 2.30 on a hot July afternoon under a bridge in a local borough. And we started chatting with him and we just said, what are you doing? And we explained what we were doing. We said, we're making a film about opioids. And he said, I don't want to be filmed, but he just opened up and the technical story there was that we were standing under a bridge with really, really bad audio because cars are going you know, over us. I didn't have the time to stick a mic on him and it was really, really a lot of hours to try to get that audio even to where it was. But you're in the moment and you you can't go back and it's like you're interviewing the mother who lost her son who's having this moment, you know, crying on the camera that she – you know, telling you her story and something weird happens like a fly goes across the frame, like literally a fly will (laughs) – and you're thinking how's that going to look? But I can't stop her and say can you stop for – can you stop crying (laughs) and start crying again? It sounds ridiculous. So – how do I handle those things? It's what I said earlier about trade-offs and constraints. You're always dealing with these trade-offs. You know, uh, for for the guy under the bridge story, we got great content. The trade-off was the technical sound wasn't great because we didn't have a, a million-dollar budget or seven guys or on the scene with us able to kind of compensate. So you just kind of go into it with that attitude that you know I'm going to try to do the best I can. Are there things? that you want to do differently once it's over of course but that's kind of the fun of it too is 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 for me balancing those things and and working with those constraints because hollywood when they have endless budgets and endless resources they still flop sometimes you know they still make bad films and that happens all the time right. we don't need to be reminded of that but i think if you're telling good stories Sometimes that's forgivable, and you you kind of learn a lot through those mistakes and try to make it better on the next round.
0: And we can't spend forever getting started as well, for you can continue to tweak, 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 tweak. And we, we won't have that perfect project that comes out. But after some point, well, we have to get out there in society and we have to do the work of being a human, as Marcus Aurelius says. And with films, with content, with projects, I could even sit and edit this file for days and still see, oh, there's this one thing that I could change about it, but ultimately settle and move on with life.
1: Well, that's a a very good point in filmmaking and in stoic philosophy, because, you know, there's these very famous and almost romanticized stories of painters. I think even Leonardo da Vinci, there's stories about him working on paintings throughout his whole life, just maybe going up to it once every couple months and nudging some paint on. I mean, I'm being dramatic, but some people really want to work that way. And I realize, and I'm, I've actually been in some conflict with certain filmmakers of driving that, look, we, we got to, like you said, do the work, do the human work, get out there because ultimately that's what it is there are things that in our minds aren't perfect but we have to be ready to get it to a point where it's washable or good or even maybe a little great and somewhere on that scale we don't want it to suck but if it's in the middle somewhere i'll take that i'll take that because i'd rather have something that you know that's good, people watch, and then you can move on to the next project and do something different with it and you know having that obsessive uh attitude of perfection doesn't work. It doesn't work in film. I don't think it works in life and again, people get caught up with famous examples uh in the film world right off the top of my head, James Cameron comes to mind, you know he spends years between projects that works for him. then there's other people like Woody Allen that We'll put out a film every other year and he just keeps at it. And guess there's no one right way to do it. But I tend to be on the side of let's just do the best job we could right now and move forward. And maybe five years from now, our best now won't be our best then because hopefully we will have improved.
0: But You can't be too hard on yourself either. Right. It's a common theme in Stoic philosophy. Well, we can have this goal. We can have the standard we aspire to, but we won't quite reach it. There's going to be a flaw. It's part of life. It's part of human nature. And that's okay. But if we can recognize that growth, we can find areas for improvement. That's a time to rejoice rather than thinking we have all the answers. We have everything figured out and not improving and even giving up in some circumstances
1: film, you know, just try to, again, put out the best product we have. I don't own $100,000 cameras. My cameras get the job done. I wish they were a little better sometimes, but it also forces you to be better again within those constraints as well. So having that idea of perfection, again, I don't think is a very reasonable or rational thing. And it certainly isn't going to make anyone happy. I think it's going to just breed more uh, misery by having that sort of attitude. So it works in filmmaking and it works in life to find moderation and to move forward.
0: All right, we're coming on time here. Anything else that you'd like to add, particularly where people can find you online and find the film?
1: First of all, I'd like to thank you again for this conversation. It's always uh, great talking with you. And if people are interested, um, I don't have a website, uh, but uh, they can find me on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram kenny luck usually kj luck people can feel free to find me there and as far as my my films uh youtube uh, opioid nation the making of an epidemic is on youtube uh, as well as uh my first film half empty the life in america's unhappiest city is also on youtube
0: all right very good and if you could have just one message for our listeners what do you think you would tell them
1: (laughs) I think I would say, going back to our our conversation earlier, that what you're doing is important. I think focusing on this type of philosophy is really needed in the world that never really gets dated too much. I mean, you're quoting philosophers that are 2000 years old and I think that it, my particular favorite Stoic is, is Epictetus. I, one of the quotes that always sticks out mm-hmm. in my mind is if, if your cup breaks, pretend that it's someone else's, you know. And it's as simple as that is. It's it's realizing the limits to life and really finding happiness in that means somewhere of not being too miserable or too happy. and You know, maybe that sounds not good enough for certain people, but I think that that moderation is a good approach to life in a lot of ways. We're never really too disappointed by things that happen if we have that attitude. So I I think that would be my message.
0: Right. To not place tremendous value on externals, things that can be replaced. Right. And appreciate that which we have.
1: And that really is a contemporary attitude in psychology, as you're very well aware. I mean, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, uses that principle with great effect and has been very well researched that that does improve people's mental health if they work it that way, that, you know, realizing that really what is in, in my control is my emotions. Right That's very difficult to understand sometimes when you're being bombarded by life because life can be very unforgiving many days and months and years, but ultimately your your own little shell and what happens in that, I think you could control, and once you realize that, I think you're on the path to to maybe being finding contentment
0: and that's good good, a good summary there that yes, if we work to gain more control of our thoughts and emotions and have proper judgments about the things around us. We can live a better life, be more content, be more calm, tranquil, and happier. <laughs> Let's use that word. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for having me again. All it was right. a pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media. Find past episodes and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom tailored podcast episodes, and personalized one on one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help grow my efforts. Email me with your thoughts Justin at gmail.com. Thanks for your support. Podcast music, used with permission is brought to you by Phil Giordana's symphonic metal group Fairyland from their album Score to a New Beginning. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.